Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kindos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, I was recently talking to someone who's in local church leadership, and he was talking to me about this tension that he often feels, and I identified with it, of trying to build bridges and partnerships across churches and Christian organizations uh, for the sake of mission. And the tension is this, is that on the one hand, you want to be connected to as many people and organizations as possible, because after all, when you're trying to advance the mission of the gospel— You can never have too many friends. You can never be connected to too many people. You can never be connected to too many resources. But on the other hand, when you look at the American church, and we'll just say when you look at American evangelicalism, there is a fairly large contingency of us who are knuckleheads, to put it kindly. That's the kind word. That's a that's the okay. kindest word I could think of in my lexicon of kind words yes. to convey a strong emotion. Like I'll just give you a for instance. So there are large groups of people within American evangelicalism who are for lack of better terms neck deep in right-wing political idolatry. And that becomes a very prominent part of certain platforms and even certain parachurch organizations and there isn't even some within that group who Uh, advocate for things like Christian nationalism, which is a troubling movement, which is kind of trying to take the church in a sideways direction politically in America. Then there are also groups and fairly large groups, uh, denominations even within evangelicalism that have either spent years covering up sexual abuse scandals or who at the very least are sort of apathetic to the crisis and really unhelpful in a lot of ways uh, to this crisis of sexual abuse in uh, the evangelical church. And then there's those groups that are like really at the center of being problematic. Uh, But then there's like just a lot of people and groups and organizations in the, the ecosystem of that that aren't necessarily engaged in those things but are kind of like using the same platforms, they're running the same circles, and so it just kind of becomes like a little bit of a mess on um, who do you really want to be associated with. Uh, You want to build, you know, unity across groups and across believers, but at the end of the day, who do you really want to be associated with? And this is a question that, you know, Tamara, you and I have wrestled with ourselves from time to time in terms of what voices we want to promote and amplify on our own platform. Right. Yeah. That's um, something that I don't think I had put as much intentional thought into until, uh, you know, we would get some requests about ads or promoting other podcasts even or promoting just other um Christian organizations, even on the podcast or on our blogs. And uh, sometimes I would be like, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And then I look into that organization further or look into that podcast further and uh, quickly realize we don't agree on some critical things. And uh, for the sake of our listeners, I actually don't feel comfortable signing off on here. We are promoting this considering we don't actually agree with a lot of what's being said. Right. And some of it is like, oh, we think this is problematic or can lead to, you know, abusive teachings and things like that. And sometimes it's just stuff is like, hey, we just don't like that's not in our vision or that's not what we agree with in terms of our theological 
vision for how to live out our faith. Yeah. And to be fair, uh, our podcast is certainly different than the church, right? Because we have a very like niche vision in terms of what we're trying to do with this podcast and with our blog, where the church, the mission of the church is defined by scripture. Um, and now how you carry that out is a little bit different, um, from church to church. But, uh, I just want to make sure it's very clear that we are here. Kainos project in and of itself is not the church. Uh, So the way that we approach this topic is a little bit different from the church perspective and from just having a podcast perspective. Right. Yeah. Because there are a lot of voices that we do want to amplify, but because of the vision that we have, there are a lot that we would say no to. Um, but then at the same time, there's a there's the tension there because there are calls throughout the New Testament for Christians to be unified, to be united. And probably the best example of this is in John 17. Uh, and that's where in the gospel account uh, it's recorded uh, Jesus's last words on the night he was to be betrayed. And so like these are like the last moments that Jesus spends with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And so it stands the reason that he's going to like bring out the most important subject to talk about. And he spends a lot of that time talking about unity. In what's called the high priestly prayer, uh, Jesus, he prays to the Father that his disciples would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And so you could say that unity is important to Jesus. Um, And the measure of that unity is the triunity of God himself to be completely one in the same, unified with one another. That's actually the vision that Jesus gives for the church. Right. And you see that uh, not only from like the words of Jesus himself, but even throughout the New Testament, a lot of the letters that Paul's writing are like dealing directly with church conflict or whatever kind of division is happening within the church. And he's constantly calling them back to unity. Uh, So the theme of unity among believers is very prominent within uh, the New Testament. And so we can't like we can't ignore that. Right. But then on the other hand, we have to ask from a practical perspective, what are the parameters around that? Is there a limit to that unity? And what does that unity actually look like? Does that mean that we have to be a part of the same organization? Or what do, What are the levels and aspects of that? Um, I mean, obviously, there are moral parameters to unity, um, as some of the stuff that we talked about um, just a couple of minutes ago uh, would indicate. Uh, But then there's a lot of theological parameters that can limit how closely we work with or associate with other Christians across movements or denominations or organizations. Um, But what are those parameters and are they helpful? And um, one helpful thing about this conversation is that we actually aren't the first people to ask these questions. In fact, for more than 100 years, Christians have been seriously asking this question about how unified can we be, uh, and they've been trying to expand the boundaries of uh, unity and partnerships across different denominations and Christian movements. And broadly speaking, that movement has been referred to as ecumenism. And so today, I thought we'd take a brief look at the history of the ecumenical movement, kind of talk about some of its strengths. Uh, some of its shortcomings, and then like how that history can shape how we think about unity across denominational or doctrinal differences in the global church today. So that's what I want to talk about today, but we'll dive into it in just a moment. 
Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So today we're talking about ecumenism, which is this idea that the global church should be as united as possible. Like there should be no denominations. Um, but I thought we'd take a, a brief look at the history of that. And really, when I say history, we're just going to look at a couple of thumbnail highlights uh, rather than a comprehensive history. But if you are interested in a comprehensive history, uh, the Christian historian Mark Knoll, he tells this whole story across like 40 or 50 pages in his book, uh, Turning Points. And so we'll link to that in the show notes. I found that book helpful. Um, you should pick it up. Uh, but uh, the history of ecumenism it starts really in the early 20th century, and that's when some Christian leaders, they really began to look around uh, at all the denominations within Christianity, and they started to ask, well, why Christians are we not united, uh, certainly not as united as we were in the earliest days of the church? Because when you look back at church history— for the first millennium of the Christian movement, you know, from when Jesus ascended into heaven, there was just one global church. There was no denominations. There was just the Christian church. It was like that for a thousand years. But then that all changed in 1054 when the Western church and the Eastern church had some pretty profound disagreements over the theology of the Holy Spirit. And there were a lot of political things happening as well, but kind of the breaking point um, was that the Western church kind of changed the statement of faith. They added a, a, a word in there that hadn't previously been there. The Eastern church like, what the heck? And this led to what was called the Great Schism. And from that point forward, the church was separated into two distinct organizations that operated independently and didn't really talk to one another. In the West, there was the Roman Catholic Church, and in the East, there was the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so then for the next 500 years, uh, there were now two distinct Christian churches rather than one distinct Christian church. And then you get to the 1500s, and that's when this thing really breaks wide open because that's when Martin Luther began to stand up uh, against the corruption that was taking place uh, in the medieval Roman Catholic Church, uh, and that launched the Protestant Reformation. And the thing about uh, being a Protestant is once you start protesting and you get a taste for it, uh, it's hard to stop. And so as the Protestant Reformation uh, kind of grew, uh, it splintered out into uh, multiple groups, and those groups continue to multiply uh, throughout the last 500 years or so. And that's how we eventually got to the 45,000 Christian denominations that exist today. Did you know that there are 45,000 different yeah. denominations around the world that's in Christianity today? incredible. I certainly cannot list all 45,000. I can probably list five. Yeah, but there's... Wow. 
Yeah. A lot more. Yeah. Um, so these leaders in the early 20th century, they're like, wow, that's pretty crazy that we have all these, you know, tens of thousands of denominations. And this I started to think like, hey, we need to start coming back together for the sake of Christian mission, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of people coming to know Jesus. Why are we all working independently when we could be working together? And so there were a lot of organizations and movements that started kind of to that end to start to pull people back together from, you know, these splintering uh, denominations. And in 1910, uh, the World Missionary Conference was held in Edinburgh, Scotland. And this was a pretty historic event in the diversity of Christians that it brought together. Uh, I mean, all of them were Protestant, but I think probably since the early days of the Protestant Reformation, there were these traditions being brought together, uh, even within Protestantism. Uh, and then after that conference, they, they kind of continued to work together, a lot of the people who were involved in that, uh, to build unity and uh, kind of continue forward in that. And eventually in 1946, the World Council of Churches was formed, and that was meant to be sort of like a United Nations of the church. Uh, And that council, it did include Protestants, but it also included Catholics and uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians. And some of those affiliations were kind of loosey-goosey and it's kind of complicated, but, you know, the people were, you know, at least in the conversation there. And then later, in 1962, uh, and extending through 1965, the Roman Catholic Church, they held the Vatican II Council, and that council was very significant for a lot of reasons. Uh, But for our purposes in this conversation, uh, they really softened teaching around uh, the Reformation, because back in the day, they had, you know, considered Martin Luther and anybody who followed him a curse. They anathematized them is the word that you use. Uh, And they just, you know, they said they're not even Christians. They are heretics and they're out of the club. In 1962 to 1965, they began to soften that language to kind of increase the possibility of collaboration and partnership across that divide. And they did the same thing uh, for the Eastern Orthodox Church, which they, which they had also, you know, had very strong language against. And so they softened a lot of that language, kind of opening the door for a, a little bit more collaboration between Protestants, uh, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, that we could kind of start to talk to each other like we were all Christians and not just, you know, these, these separate religions in a sense. And then later in 1974, we had the Lausanne Congress of World Evangelization, and um, that was organized in part by Billy Graham. And there's this Lausanne movement that's still active today that is uh, very interested in bringing diverse groups of Christians together for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of mission. And that all kind of continues into today. And so the focus of all these conferences and movements uh, have been to create some shared language uh, around Orthodox Christian teaching and uh, and and around the, the Christian mission in order to build as broad a coalition as possible for the sake of mission. And so the heart of it has been to ask, what I know we disagree on a lot of things, but what can we agree on, uh, and how can we think more expansively about partnering together? And so that was always the heart of the movement. Um, and in the early days, there was a lot of excitement around that. It's like, hey, we're talking to people that we haven't talked to in like centuries, and we're starting to get excited about Jesus together. But then there were some limitations to it as well. Uh, and th- there were some kind of issues that began to come up because uh, the movement, it, it kind of started to get tripped up a little bit, uh, where certain segments of it got a little too broad in who they included. 
uh, and the agreed upon kind of statements of belief really started to become lowest common denominator. And, and just as a for instance, so some would want to include uh, Unitarians. And if you don't know what a Unitarian is, they, they don't believe in the Trinity, which is basically an essential Christian doctrine that you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They deny that doctrine, which is pretty fundamental to Christianity. And there are others that wanted to include people who uh, do not affirm the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Say, so, well, it's a symbol of new life, and it doesn't really matter whether he actually, you know, historically, physically rose from the dead, which again is a fundamental Christian teaching. But they're saying we're all together, and we can craft a statement that is broad enough that would include all of us in that. But then once you craft that statement, that that statement kind of becomes meaningless, and that alliance becomes somewhat meaningless because. If we're uniting around essential Christian doctrine and the Christian mission, um, we need a statement that is specific enough that it outlines essential Christian doctrine and Christian mission. And if we don't have that, then what are we really doing other than meeting and having tea together? It's kind of like where it became. And so because of that, a lot of the efforts of ecumenism, uh, they kind of stopped up. And now if you look at it today – there's a lot less enthusiasm around that project and that movement than there used to be. So it seems that there are limits to the effectiveness of broadband ecumenism. Um, there are essential Christian teachings that uh, we have to say that there are some things that are outside that circle of unity. But for you, Tamara, so that's kind of the open question. But to your mind, what are those essentials? Can what can Christians agree to disagree on and still be on the same team? This is the discussion that's been happening for a very long time. And so uh, I don't think I'm going to answer it here on this podcast, but I can at least. That's why people are tuning in. Solve it. <laughs> yes. I know. Fix it. You're always like, all right, solve the world problems. Solve all of our division. Uh, I think if it were that simple, then we wouldn't still be wrestling with this hundreds of years later. I don't know. There's a lot of things that are real simple that we have trouble wrapping our minds around still. That's This fair. is not one of them. This is complicated. This is very complicated. So uh, obviously there are like your first tier issues and second tier issues. The the issue with that, though, is then that uh, different people classify what is a first tier issue and a second tier issue differently. Um, so... In regards to what we can come together on is the belief that we receive salvation in Christ alone uh, through his death and resurrection. And um, that is central to the gospel. But with that understanding of the gospel also comes um, things like the Trinity, right? So you can believe that uh, salvation comes through Christ alone, but for some reason you're not going to believe in the Trinity, but the Trinity is a first tier issue. Um, and the, the way in which you like practice things within your church, those I believe become second tier issues. Uh, so for example, um, uh, gifts like spiritual gifts, what are still spiritual gifts to this day? Like, can, can you and I, um, both be Christians that partner together, 
you believe speaking in tongues is a gift that is used today, and I don't believe it's a gift used to the day. Uh, I believe that's a secondary issue that, yes, we can still continue to partner together and do things for the kingdom of God because we land on the same understanding about the death and resurrection of Christ and um, that he was a real man that came to the earth and he truly died and truly like rose again. Uh, and that salvation comes through him and him alone. And the aspect of uh, God is a triune God as well. Mm-hmm. So um, it's hard because a lot of people would want to say there are other things that I would say are second tier issues that they want to say are first tier issues. Yeah. I mean, I would basically probably a good rule of thumb is like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. Like, I feel like, you know, in the first 500 years of the church, when we we're all still hanging out together, we got the essentials ironed out pretty good uh, through, you know, a lot of arguing and a lot of councils. But um, what we came up with, it was a statement of faith that to this day, I think uh, every Protestant tradition and uh, the Roman Catholic tradition and the Eastern Orthodox tradition, we all agree on that. I mean, apart from, you know, the filioque which is the one word that split the the east from the west but yeah. you know we can we can debate about that uh the nuances of that there was a lot of politics that went into the the split over kind of the finer points of that in the east and west um but generally speaking you know the that god is creator of all things that jesus is fully god and fully human that the trinity is an orthodox teaching uh, that jesus physically came he lived he died he rose again he ascended um, he is coming to judge the living and the dead. Um, like all those things are the essentials, and um, they're they're kind of like you know a pretty pretty slim down skeleton. Um, but I think that they outline pretty comprehensively uh, what it takes to um, have a faith that is distinctly Christian. But then a lot of times we get into this weird situation where Christians look at other Christians and they don't want to believe that they are Christians uh, because they are so different or have such a different tradition. And that's something I want to ask you a little bit more about, but we'll do that in just a moment. So we're talking about kind of church unity and not just at a congregational level, but like on the level of like the global church across different denominations, theological traditions, and the whole thing. And we've been saying that there are essential Christian uh, doctrines um, that unless you hold to those, we we can't say that you're a Christian with any kind of confidence. But if you do, we can say that. Um, but I've seen this a lot, and maybe I've seen it more than you growing up in the circles that I grew up in. Um, but I've heard throughout my life, um, evangelical Christians refer to, um, Roman Catholics, even devout Roman Catholics as non-Christians, that they are not Christians. Um, what is your response to that or your take on that whole situation? Of course, that's the one that you want to ask me about. Um, I think... It is very arrogant of us to say that Roman Catholics are not Christians and to immediately cut them off and say there's there's absolutely no way there's Christians. There's so many similar teachings um, that take place within the Roman Catholic Church, like believing in the death and resurrection of Christ um, and that he will return again and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so all of that is part of the Roman Catholic faith. Uh, the big issue that 
well, there's a number of issues, but some of the bigger issues that um, are the dividing points between Roman Catholics and evangelicals are the idea of uh, the placement that tradition has within the Roman Catholic Church. Um, tradition has a lot of authority within the Roman Catholic Church, um, which is obviously like in many ways, the Reformation is the splitting of tradition. So it's to say that it the ultimate uh, power and the ultimate authority is not placed on any person. It's placed on Christ and Scripture. So that means um, whoever is the spiritual leader in that context doesn't actually have ultimate authority or power over anyone. Um, and they can't say, well, for hundreds of years, this is what we've done. So that is what it is, even though the Bible doesn't exactly say that. Um, and also the conversation regarding praying to the saints, knowing that we don't have to go to somebody else to pray, that we can go directly to Christ himself. Like we don't need to go to Mary to pray to Christ. Um, but to say because of those things, they're automatically not Christians. I have a really hard time saying that. I do believe that there are certainly um, a great number of Catholics that I've met personally that you have conversations with them and you hear about their faith and you hear about what they believe in. And um, it would be very hard for me to say, um, I don't believe this person's saved. Right. Yeah. And I think... Um Really, what we're talking about when you talk about kind of the the authority of tradition, we're really that that's the word is authority. Whereas Protestants, we take the the Bible as the ultimate authority, and you have to be measured against that. Although we do have uh, theological traditions that we ascribe to. Maybe if you're in a low, low church setting, you don't realize that you're actually ascribing to a particular theological tradition that you're kind of inheriting as authoritative. Um, but then you can challenge it. Um, whereas in the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, there's kind of a there's kind of a sliding scale of authority, and so the different kind of traditionally held interpretations of the Bible um, are authoritative in their own way, um, and so like that's the the issue of authority there. That I don't think is the key issue in terms of like um, where it gets a little bit dicey between Protestants and Roman Catholics. Really, what it comes down to, I think, is like the means of salvation is the main issue. Because um, one of the big points of the Reformation is that, you know, salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the um, the Roman Catholic view would lean more towards it comes from faith in Christ. It comes from Christ alone and through faith, but faith working itself out. And so depending on which catholic theologian you're speaking to it can get a little bit sketchy because you know some catholics would um explain it in a way that i would very much agree with that yes right. like that it comes through faith in jesus uh and the the proof of that faith is in works as james says faith without works is dead um and so where there is no works then we can you know safely say that there was no faith and so in that sense i'm like yes that's 100% agreement, but where it's kind of like the works kind of precede the the um, the receiving of, of salvific grace, that's where I think we have a little bit more of a fundamental difference. And so that's something to grapple with and to kind of press into like, what are we saying when it when salvation comes through Jesus and faith in Jesus? And uh, what is the relationship of works to that? 
Um, but I would say, by and large, um, when I talk to a Roman Catholic who's actually, you know, a devout Roman Catholic um, who knows their theology, um, my experience with them is that I'm talking to a Christian. And so that's going to be my root assumption. In the same way that when I talk to someone who's an evangelical who goes to church, I'm going to assume that they're a Christian. But we do know that a lot of people go to Roman Catholic churches and a lot of people go to evangelical churches who, at the end of the day, aren't Orthodox Christians. And so, you know, but like we're talking broadly speaking, um, I think it's it's safe to go under the assumption that someone who says they have faith in Jesus has faith in Jesus. Right. It's hard for us to say uh, I am the one who can determine the actual state of your salvation and the state of your heart. Like there are plenty of evangelical Christians who in America would say they are evangelical Christians. Um, but in a lot of ways, I might look at them and, and wonder if that is true. Uh, so it's not necessarily uh, because of the church they're tied to. It's more necessarily their own life. But I do agree. There are some difficulties with some of the Roman Catholic uh, church's teachings that I understand why Protestants will lean towards saying they're non-Christians. Um, but oftentimes those people that are so quick to categorize them as non-Christians are, are pretty arrogant and um, maybe lack grace in their own faith. They're not the people we like to hang out with. Is what you're saying? Um, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that. You are. Yeah. <laughs> but what do you think, like, so the, there's that question. But then what do you think, like, as we seek to, like, on the assumption that other people are who they say they are in, in saying that they are Christ followers, what do you think, like, the levels of unity and partnership are? Like, for instance, uh, I want to be a part of an evangelism effort with some Christian groups, but some of those same Christian groups, I wouldn't want to plant a church with them. So, like, what do you think are the lines and the levels of unity and partnership in the practical as we think broadly about not just our own congregation, but the the mission of Jesus more uh, uh, broadly? Uh, so I think we would, as we're talking broadly, uh, I think we would want to assume the best in a lot of churches and denominations and not automatically go in through the lens of uh, they do not lead with the same theological convictions that I lead with. Therefore, I don't want to have any kind of partnership with them. If you think about um, just a local city and the the varying numbers of Christian churches that exist within that community, would that community not be better served if those different denominations could actually come together and partner together and be the light of Christ within that community that is full of people who don't know Christ? Uh, I would say yes, of course. So we have to be willing to maybe move past um, the very detailed theological views that are important to have. So if I'm sitting underneath somebody um, who is a spiritual leader, then I want to care about those details, right? I want to care about what is your view on baptism? What is your view on spiritual gifts? What is your view on women in the church? Like there's a lot of different things that I'm going to care about if that's the church that I'm being discipled at and that I'm my soul is being cared for in that community. Um, but if that's not what's the question, if the question is, how can I 
join together with the church across the way that's a different denomination and we're going to actually pull our resources together to better care for this community. Let's say that is, um, I'm thinking locally of the city we live in, right? Where we have a pretty large homeless population. Uh, Let's say there's different churches that want to band together to help minister to people that are without homes, without shelter. Uh, Then I don't see why we can't join together for the kingdom of God to meet the needs of those people and actually be a place to minister to them. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would say the same, like when it comes to those more humanitarian things or even like locally, uh, local advocacy things like in your city, whether it's, you know, for the unhoused or it's just, um, you know, different issues of poverty or justice that are happening in your own city. I'm very comfortable building a, a coalition across, you know, a uh, kind of low church uh, Baptistic tradition where it's, you know, that's my tradition with the Presbyterians, with the Roman Catholics, with if, you know, if there is a an Eastern Orthodox congregation right. nearby you, um, you know, they're they're not very common out where, where we live. But uh, just across the even just the broadest spectrum, building a coalition across that for meeting the humanitarian needs or the justice needs of the community. I see no problem with that. Now, when we get to the level of like, say we're going to put on an evangelistic event, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to get a little bit more narrow, but I'm still going to want to stay broad. If we're talking about mainly about evangelistic outreach, then I'm fine, you know, partnering with Presbyterians, even though they baptize babies and that's not my jam or with Anglicans or, uh, with others who, as long as they have the same understanding of the authority of Scripture and the same definition of the gospel and how it is that you're saved, I'm like, okay, cool. Like that's we can we can be in total agreement with that. Now, when we get down to the level of like, who do I want to plant a church with? I'm not going to plant a church with Presbyterians because then we're going to fight over who who baptizes who, and we're going to have a church split. Or um, I'm probably not even if there's another uh, Baptistic. Uh, kind of group, I'm not going to probably plant a church with very hardline complementarians because I I think there's a little bit more flexibility there and they don't and we're going to fight. And so I think for actually for the sake of unity, it's better to kind of subdivide in uh, in certain regards um, to kind of maintain unity of the church more broadly and then also just to be more effective, but also then still have that that mind to kind of come across those barriers for the sake of, of mission and for the sake of serving your community. Yeah, I agree. Uh, But whenever there's any kind of an event that now we're starting to weigh out, like which church is going to teach an event. um, I, I do think that's where we need to care a little bit more about what's happening and uh, whether or not that's the particular church we want to partner with. But by and large, um, I think we are at a point within like American church history where we are more divided than we are unified because we want to think that our way is the only way in terms of the way that you actually uh, live out your Christian life, right? And so if you are under the assumption that your way is the only way, um, then you really begin to shut a lot of other believers out of your life and even beginning to 
maybe hold yourself in some kind of a higher regard, like you have found the secret that nobody else has found. And that is really dividing to the church. I think it was even in Corinthians where Paul was talking about, um, I'm pretty sure it's the Corinthian church. Um, some were following Paul, some were following Apollos, and some were following, I can't remember the other guy's name. Do you remember his name? Was this it, was was it Peter? It would be Cephas if it was Cephas, Peter. Mm-hmm. Peter. Yeah. yeah. So he's basically saying like, hey, you guys can follow like any one of us. Like we're all different leaders here. And uh, this is no reason to cause a divide within the church because you want to um, advocate for the leader that you were discipled under. Uh, and really he ends up going on to talk about that being an issue of pride and that being an issue of arrogance, not really a core critical issue within the church itself. So I think in many ways we can we can listen to the words of Paul and even reflect that back to the ways that we're willing to engage with other churches. Um, it's important that we find opportunities to unify with the the global church and not only want to filter everything through our own denomination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this great article that um, I read recently by missiologist Ed Stetzer, where he talks about the, quote, dangerous calling of evangelical ecumenism, where he kind of talks about exactly what we're talking about, partnering across uh, different denominations that are broadly evangelical for the sake of mission and like just kind of like the picture in my mind I have is like what like a, a, what would a win look like in this situation it, for me it would probably be like you can have like a presbyterian and an assemblies of god and a southern baptist and an anglican on the same stage working for the same mission even though if you happen to go into one of their churches it's going to look very different the practices are going to look very different um but like how do we uh, create connection points to where um, I don't have to buy into all the ways that you believe that church should operate on the week to week, but we can still kind of partner. Uh, what do you think are some of the limits of that, though? Even in an evangelical context, uh, like what would keep us legitimately from partnering in certain ways or coming together in certain ways? I think it even goes back to a lot of what you had described about, for example, your view on baptism versus another denomination's view on baptism. If you believe that whatever is actually happening within that partnership is going to lead to more division than it is unity, then maybe that's the limit that you found. If you can't comfortably step into the space of whatever the partnership looked like. Now, it's hard to talk in like general terms of what does partnership actually mean. Um, So let's say it's uh, a missions organization. You might think, well, that's easy. You're just sending people to different parts of the world. Um, But the way you go about missions might be different depending on your denomination. Um, Some of people might really want to uh, drive home uh, certain theological views that absolutely must be stated within that missions organization. Um, and others might want to actually go in and try and equip leaders that are already within those communities. So it really just depends on what exactly you're thinking of partnering with other people with. And if you find that as you begin to plan that, as you begin to think through, if there's more 
uh, arguments over dividing points than there are uh, common ground, then you have easily found your limitation of what you should be doing within that Mm -hmm. particular situation. Again, it's hard to speak in specifics when we don't have like something specifically we're talking about. We're just talking about the broadest sense of partnering with other churches. Um, But in any ways that we can partner with other churches, uh, that should be our goal. And as you get further down the process of what that looks like, if there then becomes some real large hinge points, then it might be time to um, separate from that partnership. Yeah. And I think as you get more closely aligned, even on issues of theology, you would think like, oh, yeah, that's, that makes sense to partner across you know, this particular gap. Um, I think one legitimate limitation would actually be issues of like not theology, but morality. Because there are certain churches or organizations that I agree with them on like, I don't know, 85, 90, 93% of theology. Um, But there is uh, moral issues that uh, I would staunchly disagree with them on. Like, you know, just to be frank, there's a lot of evangelical organizations that I agree with them on the vast majority of their theology, and yet they use a a large part of their platform to stoke racial animosity. And there's other groups that are really just, um, uh, I don't even know the word for it, just uh, re-traumatizing sexual abuse victims who have been victims of uh, clergy sex abuse or in situations where the church really did not serve them. And yet there is this kind of obtuseness about that that really ridicules the people who are trying to make reforms in that regard. To me, those are moral issues uh, that transcend kind of having right theology that um, it, that I'm going to take pause on. And then that's where it gets a little bit complicated because, like, there's the people doing those things, yes. and then there's the people who hang out with the people who are yeah. doing those things. And well, so it just kind of gets a, a little messy. Right. So for you to say, like, uh, you might have more of a hang-up related to moral issues, I then would want to kind of push back and say, so let's say, okay, so because you're talking about uh, – like a very large denomination that's had some issues, not some issues that's saying it in a not a kind way to those that have been victims. So that have had some major issues with pushing aside uh, cases of sexual abuse. For example, um, SBC church, like that is a huge issue within SBC, but SBC, how many, how many uh, PCA, right. But how many churches exist within SBC? Uh, I don't know the number a lot. It's like the one of the largest denominations, right? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands of churches. So if we're thinking about my local church partnering with another local church that is associated with SBC, are we automatically not going to partner with them because they're connected with SBC at large, which has been blatantly pushing aside sexual abuse cases, even if this particular church has had n- no uh, cases of sexual abuse and their leaders haven't been pushing that aside, but because they're connected like other hundreds of thousands of churches, are you then saying you wouldn't partner with that church? No, but I'm saying that if they um, carry the same general ethic of okay. the people yeah. who are no, I understand. trying to scuttle any right. type of reform, right. then yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, 
pump the brakes a little bit. But if they're, you know, within the SBC and they're like, yeah, we feel really just kind of conflicted about this and we're pushing for the these reforms. Yeah. We love the Southern Baptist Convention, but we love abuse survivors. We mm-hmm. we love all people and we want to address justice issues, but we also are Southern Baptists. Then, yeah, I'm like, OK, cool. We're from a ethical perspective and an ethical vision. We are aligned um, right. And that's one of the things about the Southern Baptist Convention. It's it's a, a free association of autonomous uh, local churches. And so right. it, it's unique among denominations, uh, the major mm-hmm. denominations in that regard, that there's a, a lot more autonomy. And it the, kind of comes from the bottom up. But I think, yeah, they, they, it gets – do you have to like start to think through those things in terms of like what do I want to be associated with? And like some people's brand is like racial animosity and just uh, chauvinism. And yeah. uh, I think that that becomes a a it's not only a moral issue, but I feel like it's a barrier to uh, the the gospel being uh, proclaimed without any hindrance uh, because we're putting stumbling blocks in front of the gospel. And that's where um, I'm like, mm, well, maybe to partner over here or over there or to be, you know, visibly, you know, on the same stage in, in this regard might be a hindrance to my effectiveness in reaching the people that I want to reach because it's taking me a step backwards and putting some of the blocks in the way rather than creating a broader coalition that can multiply effort. Yeah, I understand. It's just so messy, though, because in in a large uh, just going back to SPC, unfortunately, um, they have so many churches that would say they are an SBC church, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have moved forward the same agenda or, I mean, I wouldn't even want to say it's agenda, but it's something that they have just been just terrible at handling and even uh, probably causing more situations to have because they've pushed aside and tried to, Uh, cover up as much sexual abuse as possible and now that it's coming to light you're right like the the name of sbc is very tainted uh from a christian and non-christian perspective like you hear the name sbc and you automatically associate them with um the cover-up of sexual abuse scandals right Mm -hmm. it's a little Um, bit more i think pronounced out here on the west coast hmm. you go back to you go down to the deep south and it's like less so yeah. But out here, certainly yeah. in Cali- we're in Southern California, you know, lefty California. It's like people are like, ooh, like, I yeah. don't like yeah. uh, so less I guess so it's in also, different regions. It's yeah. also reading the temperature of the community that you're living in and what um, what that partnership also might be saying, even though it's not said. Uh, so it takes a lot of discernment in understanding who you're going to partner with and in what capacity you're going to partner with them. Obviously, if your church is now taking on um, I don't know, they're part of massive conferences and funding resources and all that. Like you're, you're connecting in deeper ways. You're not just partnering for a one-time event. Like you're kind of tethered to this other denomination. Uh, then I do think some of these moral and ethical issues play a heavier factor of the larger corporation. Um, but I'm just thinking of, you know, my local church wants to partner with this local church. Like, what are the parameters or what things should we be thinking through in that way? Yeah. And I think that's at the end of the day is really important is the localized context mm-hmm. because there are these national conversations uh, that you can be on one side or the other. And it's kind of difficult to see who's on what side. But in your own community and in your own region, 
and with the personal connections that you have across different groups, um, it's all about those you know human relationships um, and where there is an agreement in terms of you know the broad strokes of the the theology and also the ethical concerns and the moral concerns. Um, then you can partner with probably a lot more people than you think you can. Um, right. You just have to not get caught up necessarily on the national brand of something mm. when mm-hmm. the, maybe mm-hmm. a local expression of it is it's not different. that. Yeah. Um, but also not being wise to the fact that a lot of times when something's centrally located, even though it its tendrils go out you know, and it takes on different expressions, uh, we have to be wise to the ways in which a harmful thinking at the centralized hub can filter through uh, people who we we can partner with, but we still have to like be um, wise as serpents and innocent as doves mm. with regard to yeah. how you know yeah. kind of harmful teachings can filter in and mm-hmm. out of places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even in a different um, uh, this might be taking the conversation in a whole different way, but I think particularly of like a prosperity gospel kind of church, um, a lot of people would say, well, those are not Christians at all. So you shouldn't be partnering with them in any way. Um, but maybe in the way that prosperity gospel teaching like sneaks into certain churches, I think it, it does have the tendency to sneak into more charismatic churches, right? even though, um, you would look at their core beliefs and you would say, absolutely, they're a Christian. But then when you hear the preaching and teaching, you're like, oh, that, ah, that definitely has a tinge of some prosperity gospel teaching. Yeah. Um, And so they're not outright heretics, right? Because they hold to... <laughs> it's heretic light. <laughs> <laughs> well, and unfortunately, they might not even be realizing it because of um, just the leanings of certain types of understandings within denominations. Um, because I know a lot of friends that uh, go to the church I grew up in and they love Joel Osteen. And I like cringe just thinking about um, people sitting under his leadership because he's he's prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when it comes to unifying the church, you think, well, that let's not Let's not unify with that either. So there's just a lot of things to be weighing out um, as you're talking about unity of church. Uh, And it's probably easier not to step into unity with other churches. Right, because then you don't have to ask because your wrestle through any of this. To, you don't have to think about anything. You just stay within your own denominations. And most denominations now have like their own missions organization, their own like pastor leadership organizations. Like They can be an entity in and of themselves. So you don't even have to step outside of your own denomination for resources or for connections or for any kind of forward advancement. Because then you just connect your church with the the larger national denomination that has all the resources right we got a church in every city and the one that we don't have we're going to send money to yes yeah yeah so we're going to do that or yeah there's like a whole machine that you don't have to worry about people who aren't like you Mm -hmm. in terms of their christian faith you can stay within your denomination and have all of the things you could possibly need available but we have to step into what's uncomfortable and be willing to Uh, partner with other churches because when it comes to uh, somebody placing their faith in Christ, um, that's a win for the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't exactly agree on the fact that they believe in speaking in tongues or they want to baptize infants or only adults or 
Right. So there's that type of stuff that they've still come to a saving faith in Christ. And that is ultimately um, what we should care about. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about those who come from like Pentecostal denominations or movements. I feel like uh, Pentecostals are kind of like uh, they have an interesting place in evangelicalism. Because their beliefs in many ways are you know, very firmly evangelical. Their practices are very evangelical. Yes. Um, but they're kind of different from the, re- the rest of everybody else. And so they're kind of like evangelicalism's like crazy cousin. Well, I just, and like they're yeah. still so they're like in the group, but they're like, we're like, oh, we don't, you know, I, he does some stuff sometimes that we don't like to talk about. Well, Whereas I, it's like, it's a lot easier for like a Baptist and a Methodist and a Presbyterian to get on the same page. And then the Pentecostal comes in and we're like, whoa, it's... The temperature of the room changed a little bit, well, but like they're still in the club. The Pentecostal comes in and like the party is getting started. So like they just to me that's like the fun cousin, and you're like it's the crazy cousin. Uh, maybe that's because I come from a Pentecostal background, <laughs> but uh, I yeah I can see the need for different denominations too within as we're all trying to figure out what does it look like to not only live our own lives after uh, what Christ taught, but how do we then be part of communities that are, that are desiring the same thing. And you just see in some ways, just different expressions of that through the denominations. And uh, particularly, I think um, like assemblies of God is one of the fastest growing denominations outside of uh, North America. I think it's the fastest growing denomination inside of North America. Is it? It's not the too? biggest, but it's the fastest growing. Yeah. 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 So like there's something to be said about that, right? I mean, numbers are not everything. That's not the the way that we understand growth in the kingdom is not only by like, great, we have 100,000 people who say they're Christians. Like, unfortunately, we're seeing how that's not actually true because there's a lot of people just in America that say they're Christians and uh, nothing else about their life would reflect that. So, yeah. Anyways, I just went off on a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> I apologize. That wasn't what we were talking about at all. But as you can see, um, it's complicated. It's messy. It's very messy. And so we're we're holding in tension uh, the New Testament command to hold the sound doctrine alongside the New Testament command to be unified with other Christians. And so, I mean, there's a couple of different ambiguous things in there. And the first is like, how much leeway are we meant to give to each other when it comes to, quote unquote, sound doctrine? And the other is that uh, the New Testament doesn't really exactly define what unity should look like in the practical. Like, at what point can we be considered to be unified, especially when we have these differences across uh, kind of convictional beliefs that don't really allow us to hold services together on a Sunday morning, like because, you know, we baptize babies or we don't baptize babies or we speak in tongues or we don't speak in tongues or women are allowed to preach from the pulpit or they're not. Like, at what point can we still be unified even across those differences and, you know, to be distinct and yet still one together? So, like, all of that is, like, really complicated and I don't think it's so much a problem to be solved as it is a tension to be managed as even within your own local congregation. All the people are different. Like if you're doing church right, there's a lot of different people there and it's hard to work around the personalities. And so just like expanding that 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 struggle out to multiple congregations and trying to do that in a faithful way. And I think like the most important part is that we're oriented towards unity, that we're oriented towards trying to unite and partner with other people. And I think that that's where um, we're going to see 
um, really the heart of Jesus when he said that uh, he wanted us to be one as he and the Father are one. So to wrap it all up, in the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.3, I encourage you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Hello, hello, Quinice Petway here, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. Are you someone who loves to take a deep dive into God's word, one verse at a time to explore his will for your life and desire to draw closer to him? If that sounds like you, I'd love to invite you to head over to lifeaudio.com and search Your Daily Bible Verse to tune in and subscribe for daily inspiration, life application, and spiritual transformation through the in-depth exploration of God's Word.